I'm Jill Shaw, and you're listening to Last Night at School Committee. Ross Wilson and I are here to summarize for you what happened last night during the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. What happens at our school committee meeting has big implications for our students and our city. And this podcast shines a light on the decisions our leaders are making. Ross, good morning. Good morning, Jill. How are you? I'm good. How are you doing? I'm good. I feel like we were just here last week. We were. Oh, that's right. So we had a special meeting last night because the school committee, by law, has to meet and present the budget on the first Wednesday of February. Last night, the school committee met for the second time in two weeks in order to hear an initial presentation on the preliminary budget for the next school year. This was the focus of the meeting. There were no votes and just one other brief report announcing nominations to the English Language Learners Task Force. That's right. And just as in every other meeting, the evening started with the superintendent's report. She covered a wide range of topics, including the Boston Globe article accusing the district of misrepresenting graduation rates. Yeah. So, Jill, first, the superintendent acknowledged the importance of Black History Month. And she actually did a really nice job of sort of summarizing the history of Black History Month, how it became Black History Month, the importance of black history being taught in our schools. Mm. She, she then went on to talk about COVID rates, uh, which have dramatically decreased for both staff and students, which is wonderful. And then the rest of the comments were really about this Boston Globe story that the superintendent was basically saying, look, they're saying there's an issue with data for the last five of seven years around inflation of graduation rates. And the superintendent kind of tried to minimize this a bit and said, look, you know, the, the auditors found a sample. That sample may not necessarily be representative of the entire graduation class. And she, she really attempted to minimize the story altogether. Right. And I, the story is really around the denominator, right? Like the number of kids who were in Boston public schools at the time of graduation and what percentage of those graduated in the senior class. Right. And we'll get into it. But there's there's a big question by members here of like, how much could that sort of graduation number been impacted? Mm-hmm. Is it by a tenth of a percent or 10%? Like, what is the potential impact of the incorrect data? And so there's this question that sort of goes, it kind of runs through the whole meeting, this question about trust and how do we make sure that our community trusts us? And obviously putting forth the right information, true information is a trust builder. Some school committee members were worried that we might be breaking the trust of the community. So Members of school committee had questions about the Boston Globe article. Here's a question from Brandon Cardet-Hernandez. I think about public trust and the way that we erode that trust, even if it's perception and not reality. I'm curious if you sort of what controls you're putting in place, if you think it's a problem. And I think more importantly, you named that the data just wasn't statistically significant. Is there any way that we would be showing a statistically significant sample to, to I think, rebuild that trust that so many families were having around, around these increases? Mr. Cardet Hernandez is highlighting the severity of this problem in contrast to the superintendent's attempts to downplay it and asking for details on what measures will be put in place to address this issue going forward and restore confidence from families in the district. He's pointing out that this is larger than graduation data. It's about trust, Ross. What was the superintendent's response? So the superintendent kind of said, look, this could be solved by having the new Office of Risk Management. Mm -hmm. Um, And now this Office of Risk Management was proposed 
I guess, you know, six months ago or maybe even longer. And the school committee said, look, you're getting all this ESSER money in. We're concerned to make sure we're, we're spending the money appropriately. And the superintendent then said, well, I'll, I'll create an office of risk management. She's basically saying this issue could be solved by the Office of Risk Management as well. However, Jill, this risk manager position has been posted for months and hasn't been hired for. Look, this seems like more of a systems issue here, Jill, and not an issue that's going to be solved by hiring one person for a job that's been posted for months and months. There was more back and forth on this topic as well, including a question from Mr. O'Neill about how much the discrepancies identified by the auditors impact the graduation rate previously reported by the district. The superintendent and senior executive director of the Office of Data and Accountability, Monica Hogan, responded by saying, it's impossible to determine the impact given the small sample size and the fact that it was across multiple cohorts. We also heard from the chief technology officer, Mark Racine, who said that some of this discrepancy may be in fact the result of lack of documentation rather than incorrect information. That's right. Then Mr. Cardet Hernandez uh, summed up this conversation we think pretty well, coming back to this theme of trust. It's just about trust and making sure folks know that when we say a graduation rate is what it is, that that we're doing it honestly. So Jill, I just, I got to say here on this issue of trust, if there's allegations made, be it correct or incorrect, an appropriate response would be, here's how we're responding to the allegations. Mm -hmm. Taking a defensive stance or arguing about, you know, some numbers or some percentage or that some somebody else is going to come in and try to solve this for us. None of that is saying, we got this. Right. Like, we own it. We understand this is a problem. We own it. We're going to address it. Trust us. We will take care of this issue. Well, the other thing is, right, if it's wrong, then give us the right data. Right, right. Go back and redo it. So, Jill, the meeting moved on to public comment. And there was just 14 people lined up to, for comment last night. Nearly all of them were parents and students at the P.A. Shaw Elementary School. We have, we've spoken about this in the last number of episodes as a reminder, the P.A. Shaw is a really strong K-0 to grade 3 school that was planned to go through fifth grade. The expansion was paused in 2018 without explanation and was never resumed. There's an overwhelming desire for the school community to resume that expansion. Yeah. You know, again, this week we were reminded just how incredible the students at this school are. They're amazing presenters at these meetings. It's hard to understand why the district wouldn't do everything it can to foster a school and a school community that has produced such inspiring students. So then the meeting moved on to nominations for the English Language Learners Task Force. Ross, what do we know about the nominees? Well, there's two, there's two great nominees to the English Learners Task Force. Ms. Polanco Garcia, who we know as just a reappointed school committee member recently, she's phenomenal. So she's a parent, she's an activist, and she's a great addition to the English Learner Task Force. And Ms. Roxanne Harvey, who is the chair of the BPS Special Education Parent Committee. It's really wonderful to bring together sort of the special education and English learners task force, bring them together and sort of talk about how to serve students with disabilities and English learners well. Yeah, terrific idea. And the other report last night was the preliminary budget presentation for the next school year, fiscal year 23. This is the district's initial take. This is what we heard last night, their initial take on the budget for the next school year. It doesn't include ESSER funding, and it will be scrutinized in a series of public meetings over the next few weeks. School committee will vote on a final proposed budget in March, and then that will go in front of city council and the mayor to be approved. Ross, does it make sense to talk about this presentation through the questions asked by the school committee members, whose points were so good 
as they tried to guide the superintendent and CFO, Nate Cooter, towards an acceptable final budget proposal. This is a really difficult budget, Jill, in, in the sense that it is actually it's quite large. There's not a lot of cuts happening. There's a lot of investments happening. And for that reason, they have to be really precise about how they're making investments of this huge amount of money. Right. So CFO Nate Cooter teed up the presentation of the proposed budget by talking about three things that it is built to solve for. So number one, it's built to solve for mass core implementation, addressing academic outcomes that are less than desired, and ensuring a quality guarantee. So let me just go through those real quick, Jill. So the mass core, we've talked about this at length. This is basically common graduation requirements for all of our high schools. We know that only about a third of our students who graduate are meeting mass core. Mm-hmm. Um, and this budget is meant to fill in the gaps and ensure that all of our students are eventually graduating with a mass core degree. In terms of academic outcomes, what we heard last night in this presentation was a really concerning report around students' outcomes on both MCAS, but not only MCAS, on our MAP growth assessments. This is a a formative assessment that is measuring what students are taught and then how much they have learned over the course of a period of time. What we learned, Jill, is in the fall of 2021 MAP reading achievement test for grades 3 through 11, that students who are English language learners and students with disabilities, 75% of them are at the very lowest level of achievement and growth. Students with disabilities about 58% of students with disabilities are at the very lowest achievement on reading. And 25% of students without disabilities, general ed students, 25% of them are at the very lowest achievement for grades three through 11. It's highly concerning. We also heard for the MAP math achievement that 34% of students without disabilities are at the very lowest levels. And then for students with disabilities and students who are English language learners and have a disability, 75% and then 85% respectively are at the lowest levels of achievement for math. These are really concerning data. But just to level set, when you describe these different groups of students, in aggregate, it is the majority of students that are deeply underperforming. This is a a large percent of our population. You know, it's highly concerning. What the district is saying, this budget will begin to address this issue. We didn't necessarily hear how. But we heard that it is intended to address the academic outcomes of our students. We, we again acknowledge the underperformance academically. Right, and, right. And this budget is going to solve for that. Right. That's sort of what they said last night. Right. Yeah. And, then, and then, Jill, what we heard, the third part of this was meeting the BPS quality guarantee. This was sort of all over the place, including that all core subjects are taught. Which is, it's a little concerning that all core subjects are not yeah, if, if we're not currently teaching all core subjects, that's a concern. Yeah, We heard that the quality guarantee would include 21st century facilities and that students would have fresh, nutritious meals. Which we think is also very important. There's also in that list of quality guarantee basically saying we don't have this today, but there should be more social workers, which, of course, they deserve credit for. We Obviously, this is a very important area to prioritize. Nurses, family liaisons, arts education, computer, Wi-Fi, field trips, after-school programs. A lot of what was presented as a quality guarantee sounded to me like it should be school. This all should be a part of school in an urban, diverse district. So, you know, one of the questions I had last night, Ross, is where is the money going that should be spent on delivering what they, you know, are calling quality education for all children, but other people in other parts of the country call it education for children. Right. right. 
So I'm with you, Jill. Like the, that, what what was described as a quality guarantee should absolutely be the baseline for all of our students. And that right. should be the current baseline. Um, what I would say was missing a little bit was a, a more of a conversation around investing in the social emotional supports for our students. We did hear about some positions, but I think we need to hear a lot more about how we're supporting our teachers' social emotional needs as well as our students and our families. Agreed. So Jill, we, we heard an academic presentation on gaps and the enrollment decline, and then we heard about specific investments in, in things such as air quality, libraries, and academic support services, and also custodians. So the district is spending about $10 million on air quality, about $8 million on libraries. And more specifically, you, you, know, you sort of ask where the money is being spent that doesn't go towards a quality guarantee. Well, Jill, the transportation budget is going up again. 5.4%. Jill, we are the most, we talked about this, we're the most expensive transportation budget in the country. Yeah. It's going up by another 5.4%. Amazing. Central administration budget is increasing by 17.8%. It, it's just, it's a huge number. And now there's a caveat here. Some of those funds may be used for other purposes and they're maybe holding there, but 17.8% increase in central administration. And now here's the kicker the school budgets are only going up by 1.5%. So school budgets, 1.5% increase. Right. Let me just go back. Transportation, 5.4% increase. Central administration, 17.8% increase. School budgets, 1.5% increase. So that answers the question, at least in part. And then, Jill, we also heard that $27 million will be spent on soft landings. This is essentially funding schools with declining enrollment who, if they didn't get additional funds, wouldn't be able to sustain themselves and stay open. So about $27 million uh, is going towards keeping really classrooms that are less than full open and going. Right, because the calculus is done on a per student basis. And so there wouldn't be enough funding for the right number of teachers if there was not this soft landing. So basically, instead of right-sizing the district, having a strategic plan, working against a master plan, they're providing soft landing funding because we have the money right now. Right. We've increased the budget about $50 million over the last two years in soft landings. If the funds were not available, what you would be seeing is massive amount of closure of consolidation of classrooms. Right. Um, But that's not currently happening. So that's for sure where some of the money is going. But there are still a lot of questions that remain unanswered. We've brought up often on this podcast in the past that there were big questions that we were surprised that school committee members weren't asking. That was not the case last night. Over the next hour, we heard many specific pointed questions from members about elements of this budget and what it means for current and not just future students. The first question came from Dr. Elkins, who asked about ESSER funding. The ESSER funds that come off the books in the end of fiscal year 2024, does your office have a sense of the long-term strategy about how to continue to support a lot of the programming that potentially might go away after the ESSER funds stop. CFO Nate Cooter responds by saying that ESSER funding is being spent primarily on the recovery effort. And then Mr. Cardet Hernandez follows up seeking additional clarity on the same point. Here's how Nate Cooter responded to him. There are some cases in which ESSER funding is going towards um, uh, individual positions particularly positions that are geared towards student recovery. The other piece of it is as we start to think about places where we will be looking for another additional commitment from the city, we're starting to 
um, start those investments now to make sure that students have access to them now as we start to think through. So Ross, here is CFO Nate Cooter saying that they are spending ESSER money on personnel. And he seems to be saying that some of the staff are recovery oriented, but also that they will need additional funding from the city to maintain these efforts. Additional funding from the city. What, what is he talking about? Right. So you're right. This is a bit unclear. Here's what we know. We have an increase in budget, an increase in position, juxtaposed against a decrease in enrollment. That means at some point the budget's going to shrink because enrollment drives the budget. So there's the perfect storm brewing, and we're adding positions, though we know we're having trouble filling vacancies we already have, and yet significant decreases in enrollment with further decreases projected. So Jill, what we heard Mr. Cooter say is that they are planning on adding positions, mm -hmm. and they know ESSER money is going away. Mr. Cooter seemed to indicate that they're going to make the city or ask the city or position the city to have to pay for those positions ongoing when ESSER money goes away. That, that should be interesting, given the decrease in enrollment. So Jill, Mr. Cardet Hernandez pinpoints this exact issue in his next question. If we know that there's year-over-year -year decline, why are we not planning for it in this budget exercise? Like, if we know it's true, like there's no, we, that's sort of, that there will be a miracle for us to not see enrollment decline next year. Maybe I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. So then why wouldn't we try to plan for what that is? So we're thinking sharper around the other spending. So there you go. That's the big question. Why are we planning for kids who won't be in the district next year? Why aren't we spending the budget on the students who will be in school in the district in the 22-23 school year? By allocating funding towards an inflated number, the district will end up wasting money or not spending enough money on the right things. Mr. Cardet Hernandez reinforces this point. But as a parent, as a school committee member, like people want to know sort of stuff and things and sort of like what is happening in real time. And I asked this question in many ways last time, like what is going to change in my kid's life and what will what is the promise of Boston Public Schools that I can get? Again, Mr. Cadet Hernandez hit the nail on the head. Parents whose kids are currently in the district, our current BPS students wanna know what this budget means for them right now for their kids. It needs to be both. Strategies for investments in early education to bring families into the district and stem the tide of enrollment drop, which Ms. LaPera emphasized last night, and also strategies for supporting elementary, middle, and high school students in the district currently. Ross, you've talked earlier about soft landings, the schools that can't be sustained given their current budget needs and enrollment trends. And we come back to this issue at the end of the meeting. And actually, Nate Cooter makes an interesting comment about how the district is thinking about these schools. Um, I do think we can we can talk more at the school's hearing about the soft landing process and what it buys um, and how it how it has protected non-classroom spending, the sort of non-compliant spending. And in particular, I think we, we can highlight for you the schools that have received soft landings or supplemental allocations for multiple years in a row. Um, I think that signals some schools we might want to think about how do, you know, are they on a warning list as the superintendent asked me to sort of think about in terms of schools, there's a warning list of schools that are unsustainable. Or, again, to plug the reimagined school funding, does it indicate a place where we might want to rethink how we allocate funds, because weighted student funding doesn't work in these situations. 
Ross, this is really something we have to pay attention to. He's saying that the superintendent has asked him to start thinking about a finite list of schools that are unsustainable. By the way, is the P.A. Shaw school on that list? It sounds like the parents, teachers, and students think that the Shaw is on that list. They've been at school committee meetings in droves for the past three meetings asking for support and answers. Are they getting a soft landing? Right. So, so every student in a school, every parent thinking about enrolling their student in a school should have an opportunity to understand if their school is on that list, the yeah. list of unsustainable schools. Yeah. If the district is thinking now about schools that won't be sustained down the road, it's critical that that list of schools be made public as soon as possible. I would think parents would really want to know about that list. And Jill, that would be the ultimate in trust. That's right. And that's what happened last night at the Boston Public Schools School Committee meeting. Here are some of the questions that we think are worth asking. What is BPS doing with the 17.8% increase in central office budget? How will the district deal with the perfect storm of a loss of ESSER funds in two years and the dramatic decrease in enrollment for at least the next 10 years? Will another audit of the BPS graduation data be performed? What will the district do going forward to ensure they are collecting accurate data and keeping up with any students that they've lost? And how will the district regain the trust of families in Boston? And of course, there are ways to engage and get involved. Listen in and consider testifying at the upcoming budget hearings. They're listed in our blog. Sign up for our email list at shawfoundation.org to provide feedback on this podcast, receive updates on our work, and be notified when new podcast episodes are available. Thank you for listening to Last Night at School Committee. We hope that you enjoyed today's podcast. And if you did, please rate, review, like, and share it with your fellow friends, parents, and residents of Boston. We all have a stake in the future success of Boston students. Have a great day.